Welcome to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm your host, Sarah Dickinson. Join me every other week as we get real and sometimes a bit snarky about books and reading. Sometimes I'm joined by one of my co-hosts, Catherine from Gilmore Guide to Books or Susie from Novel Visits. Other times, I talk with a bookish guest, including authors and publishing insiders who give us a behind-the-scenes peek into different corners of the book world. But always, we're bringing you great book recommendations in every single episode. Let's get rolling. Welcome to the best backlist books we read in 2023. We know how much y'all love hearing about backlist books. You've told us so in various different survey results. So we wanted to devote an annual episode entirely to backlist. Catherine from Gilmore Guide always does these episodes with me, and she's here with me today. Welcome back, Catherine. Thank you. I love doing these episodes. And you read a lot of backlists, so you're a good person to do these episodes with. (laughs) I read a fair amount. You're right. (laughs) Before we get to our best backlist of 2023, I do want to share something really fun and new that we are doing this year for our $7 a month superstars patrons. If y'all remember back to this summer, we did a companion to my summer reading guide called Summer Shelves. It was available to my superstars patrons and was entirely backlist titles recommended by podcast guests and patrons of the show. Through our most recent patron survey results, we learned a couple things about Summer Shelves. We learned that it was decently successful but not as successful as we would like it to be given the time and effort it took to put together. Our patrons communicated two issues that were really good information for me to know. I did not realize this information prior to the survey. Number one, that there are a ton of summer reading guides out there now. I mean, I know this, but what I didn't know is that some people feel like we're getting to the saturation point with summer reading guides. Secondly, there was some confusion around my summer shelves guide, which was available to patrons only, versus my regular summer reading guide that is on my website and that's available to everybody. So we decided to replace summer shelves with something that does not involve summer and avoids the clutter and confusion of that time of year. I am thrilled to announce the best backlist you read last year. It's a gorgeous PDF guide featuring the best backlist book, that 25 of our Superstars patrons read in 2023. So many of our listeners talk about wanting to read more backlist books, and this is a great resource that compiles the tippy-top backlist recommendations from readers who most likely share your reading taste since y'all are all listeners of this show. As I mentioned, we have 25 recommendations from our patrons in the guide, as well as four recommendations from the four members of the Sarah's Bookshelves live team. So me, Catherine, Susie, and Chrissy Whitley, who is my business manager slash assistant. Books in the guide have been published from 2022 all the way back to 1940. We have a wide range of time periods. We also have a wide range of genres and moods. So I hope you all will consider becoming a $7 a month Superstars patron to get the best backlist we read last year guide. And there's a link in my show notes and in my Instagram bio where you can join the Superstars patron community. I love this idea. I do too. And it feels better to break it out from all of the summer clutter. Summer felt like that May time period felt so overwhelming with stuff. Right. All right. Back to our show today. Here's how we'll do this. First of all, we're going to talk about our backlist reading stats for 2023. 
Then we're going to share our top backlist books that we read in 2023. Each of us will be sharing five. And then we're going to share a couple underrated backlist gems. And each of us will be sharing two of those. So backlist reading stats. Catherine, how did you go last year? You know what? I had an uptick in my backlist reading. It's not huge, but I read 50 books compared with 46 in 2022. And it's not a big difference, but I read more total books in 2022 than I did in 2023. So the percent of backlist I read increased. It went from 29% to 32. And a thing that stayed steady is the fact that backlist reading is my most consistently successful reading. So even though I read fewer total books, backlist was my highest success category at 84%. And of those, over 50% were four stars or higher. That's good. I'm pretty happy. Yep. How about you? Well, I read less backlist than you do, but I also read less books overall than you do. Right, because you have a life. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have kids. They do stuff. Oh, you are. You're very, very busy. I don't know how you do it. I have a lot of podcast work. <laughs> so my backlist reading decreased slightly from 2022. I read 26 backlist books last year which is down about 7% from the 28 I read in 2022. Backlist comprised about 25% of my reading and listening this year. And while the success rate of my backlist books was down slightly from last year, 88% of backlist books that I finished were successful. That's great. Last year was 93%. Oh, well. Yeah, that is high. Yeah. Year over year, my success rate keeps going down slightly for backlist. Oh, interesting. And mine's going up. Yes. I don't love that. Okay. No, I, I don't love it for you. I love it for me. But <laughs> So overall, I felt like I read slightly less backlist than in years past. Okay. I didn't DNF as many backlist books as I did in years past. But less of the backlist books that I finished were successful. And I think that actually mirrors my overall reading stats. I had less DNFs overall this year. And then my successful books I finished, that percentage was down a little bit. So basically, I need to DNF more in 2024. Okay. How is that possible? You're the DNF queen. <laughs> my DNFs went way down in 2023. Did they really? Yeah. They were down in the teens. Oh. I have previously DNF 30 plus books a year before. Oh, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, who am I becoming? I don't like this person. Right. <laughs> I love that. I am continuing to read mediocre books until the end more than I used to. And that is like, no, what am I doing? I know better than this. Well, but that's an interesting discussion. I think we're going to be talking about in an unscripted episode, book ratings, which I find fascinating. So, all right. Yeah. All right. Catherine. Kick us off with the first of your best backlist books you read in 2023. All right. I'm going to start with the way back from an author we both love. The book is Black and Blue by Anna Quindlen, published in 1998. It was her second novel. Fran is an ER nurse married to Bobby, a New York City police officer, and the mother of a 10-year-old son. 
She regularly sees women in the ER who have been beaten by their husbands, but who won't press charges, who make up excuses for them. So she has come to know a wealthy woman the hospital turns to, to help these women get out of abusive relationships. After Bobby breaks her nose, Fran realizes she's one of those women, and so turns to this advocate because Bobby has made it clear he'll never let her or their son go. From this beginning, the novel moves into the realities of starting a new hidden life. But given that her husband is a cop and has access to any number of databases designed to find people, she has to take whatever work they give her. This is quintessential Quinlan, delving deeply into an ordinary life in extraordinary circumstances. You have a woman successful in her career, earning a good income, living in a beautiful home with her family nearby, and yet for the sake of her life and love of her child, she has to give it all up, and not just temporarily, but for good. This is a sad novel. But one of the things that struck me most was that it wasn't even shocking to me now the way it would have been if I'd read it in 1998. At that time, it would have felt almost incomprehensible. A police detective allowed to abuse his wife. I mean, maybe I was naive then, but reading it now, the topic and those extremes Fran had to go to didn't surprise me. You hear about it all the time which is just wrong and once again, sad. That's Black and Blue, and I gave it four stars. Wow, that title really hits you in the gut now that you know what it means. Exactly, because I didn't look into it too much. I just looked at her backlist and thought, hmm, I'll try this one. I think I actually have that on my Kindle. Do you? Yeah. Well, I think you'd really, again, a joy is the wrong word, but I think it, it is so, it's really strong her writing. Sorry, guys, but I'm kicking things off with yet another very dark book. And it was the last book I finished in 2023. And it's by an author who is becoming autobi for me. It's Lying in Wait by Liz Nugent, the author of Strange Sally Diamond. And this book came out in 2018 in the US. When I interviewed Liz earlier this year for Strange Sally Diamond, I told her that I wished her publisher would allow her blurbs to simply be the first lines of her books because they're so compelling. So all I'm going to do for my plot summary here is share her opening line, which is, my husband did not mean to kill Annie Doyle, but the lying tramp deserved it. And that's also how I went into this book. That's all I knew about it. So if you've read Strange Sally Diamond or Unraveling Oliver one of her previous backlist books, you know that Nugent goes very dark and very twisted. I think Lying in Wait is even more twisted than Strange Sally Diamond. Since I went in blind, I had no idea where the story was going for quite a while, but I was completely into it. At the heart of the story is a mother-son relationship. Nugent does a great job building each character's backstory so you can see their motivations behind their actions, regardless of whether you're actually sympathetic to their actions or their character. And once I got deep into the story, Nugent completely surprised me with where she took things. She made it even more twisted than the direction that I thought she was going to take it in. But to counter the darkness, and this is the way she writes every single book of hers that that I've read, she uses a lot of morbid humor. 
And she did this in Strange Sally Diamond. I love it. I love this combination of very dark subject matter, very twisted, but this kind of morbid light humor scattered throughout. Did you like it more than Sally Diamond? I don't think I liked it more than Sally Diamond. Maybe about the same. Okay. I just thought it was more twisted. And I can't say why without getting into spoilers. No, understood. And you told me about it. And all you told me was the first sentence. And I immediately went, so I've read it. And what did you think? I agree. It's very, very twisted. I liked Sally Diamond better. I think there's more hope and redemption in Sally Diamond. Oh, yes. Even though people in the U.S. still thought the ending was very bleak. Mm -hmm. If you thought Sally Diamond was bleak and that bothered you, lying in wait is not for you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Sally Diamond was rainbows and unicorns compared to... I'm actually surprised that her U.S. publisher did not kind of come in on lying in wait and be like, you need to make this a little bit more... (laughs) <laughs> hopeful at some like some way. No, nobody did that. Catherine, what is your second best backlist book you read in 2023? I've got a book on a subject I've not read about before. The novel is True Biz by Sarah Novick, and it's about a boarding school for the deaf in Ohio. You have February, who's the school's headmistress, and she's hearing but has deaf parents. Charlie is a new student with a cochlear implant, and Austin is a deaf student chosen to mentor her. The novel encompasses their lives as all navigate not just the world around them, but their place in deaf society. This was a unique reading experience in that it takes place in contemporary America in the everyday world, but is populated by people living without one of the senses many of us take for granted. Unless deaf themselves Readers have no frame of reference to understand the world the deaf live in. And there's a patience to Novick's writing as each page reveals another detail, mundane to the hearing, but potentially traumatizing, isolating, or embarrassing from a non-hearing experience. And one of the areas that this is most clear is the controversy surrounding cochlear implants, which I won't go into here, but as a hearing person, We probably tend to think of them as completely positive and why wouldn't you do it? And yet in the deaf community, it's a big issue. Yeah, that's something I was totally unfamiliar with before this book came out. I haven't read the book, but I remember hearing about this debate about cochlear implants and it kind of opening my eyes, I guess. Right. I had absolutely no idea. But these elements and the thoughts they provoked were what I loved about True Biz. It would have been five stars for me, but... Even though it's not a YA novel, it kind of skews in that direction with the -the over-the-top emotions and lots of relationship drama between the teens. I felt like it was unnecessary noise in a book that is poignant in its portrayal of deaf life. And that's true biz. I have that sitting on my bedroom floor, and it's been there for a few years. (laughs) (laughs) I think you would enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I would like to read it. I just need to make time for it. Right. How about you? What's next? Again, I'm staying heavy. (laughs) Okay. This time nonfiction, but this is a five-star read for me. Kind of one of those life-changing books. It is a little niche, but I think it's less niche than you would think. So the book is What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. It came out in 2022 and it is her memoir of healing from complex trauma. 
So complex PTSD results from continuous trauma that happens over a long period of time rather than one specific traumatic event. On the surface, Stephanie seems to have her life together. She is a successful producer at This American Life, and she's in a happy relationship, but she's falling apart on the inside as a result of abuse and neglect by her parents. So complex PTSD is a condition that's not reported on much in the media, and it isn't even in the DSM, which is the book that professionals use to diagnose mental disorders. So people often don't differentiate it from regular PTSD, but it manifests itself very differently. And all of this was fascinating information for me. It is a must read for anyone who suspects they might have complex PTSD or has a close friend or family member who experienced some form of ongoing trauma in their life because it might explain a lot of their behaviors. The lingering effects Stephanie experienced were fascinating There's a focus on achievement later in life, maybe to distract or cover for things that are really wrong deep inside. There is interesting insight into estrangement from your parents and what it feels like to choose estrangement and all the complex feelings that come along with that. And the fact that complex PTSD can make you really good in a crisis because that's your comfort place. I also would highly recommend this on audio. There are actual recordings of her therapy sessions with her doctor towards the end of the book, and she will break back in and commentate on what you just heard in the therapy session, like about what she was feeling during that moment. It is such a unique way to do the audiobook. I absolutely loved it. And that is What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. All right, Catherine, what's your next pick? Well, I've got a YA novel. And it begins, Salahuddin and Noor have been best friends since the first grade when Sal was the only person who could understand Noor, who was newly arrived from Pakistan. This friendship, set in a small California town, is the cornerstone of All My Rage, a powerful novel about coming of age in a place where you're always the outsider. When the novel begins, the two 16-year-old friends aren't speaking anymore. After years of friendship, they've separated over an event that left both with feelings of anger, embarrassment, and confusion. But while they seem to have shrugged it off and moved on, both are enmeshed in difficulties. Sal's involve the present with his mother's health and his father's inability to deal with the issues they're facing. But Nor is looking to the future. She wants nothing more to get out of their small town. She's tied to be valedictorian at their school, but because her uncle brought her over to America after the rest of their family was killed in a catastrophic earthquake in Karachi, he's made it clear her duty is to stay in town and work for him. And she's traumatized by this. So like Sal, she's dealing... Is that where the title comes from? Yes, there is. There's a lot of rage in this book because both of these kids are living a life with adult responsibilities despite being surrounded by adults. And these events lead them to become friends again. Saba Tahir, the author of All My Rage, perfectly captures the heightened emotions of the teen years without making the novel read as distinctly young adult. Instead, while older readers will find moments in Sal's and Noor's lives when they think, oh, don't do it, don't do it, for these two teens grappling with the ever-tightening bonds of no way out, their choices felt real, as did the bullying and narrow-minded attitudes of some of their classmates. 
Tahir rounds out the novel using the past as recounted through the memories of Mispah, who's Saul's mother. She balances the outsized emotions of the teens while filling in the blanks in the family's history that brought them from Pakistan to America. Her words and experiences temper the pages of rage felt by Sal and Noor with an adult's perspective, the long view. All My Rage becomes a poignant novel validating anger in the face of injustice in the larger world while still advocating forgiveness in our own lives. And that's All My Rage. That too is sitting in my house. (laughs) Good Lord, Sarah. How do you have room for furniture? I don't even have that many books in my house, honestly. Like I truly don't. I am good about culling my hard copy. First of all, I read on my Kindle, so I don't get that many hard copies into my house. Right. Neither do I. But also I'm good about calling them frequently. Right. And this one is on my shelves. And you're three for three now of books that are sitting on my shelves. And now I need to move them higher to my TBR. (laughs) Well, I will give a shout out to Susie. She's the one who told me about All My Rage. She loved it. So now you've got two people, readers that you know and trust that say, this is a really good one. And she was the one who caused me to get the book into my house in the first place. (laughs) Oh, okay. Wow. She did a great job selling it because she did the same thing to me. We were in a bookstore and she's like, you need to read that. I'm like, whoa, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now I got to wait to read it. Right. (laughs) My next pick is a book whose premise on the surface is not up my alley at all. But after hearing that Meredith from Currently Reading and you both loved it, it started to sound strangely appealing to me. So by the way, your trend with me today is that you have read a lot of my picks. Yes. (laughs) And I have purchased a lot of your picks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is Search by Michelle Hunovan. And it came out April of 2022. This is a fictional memoir. So it is not true. The story is not true, but it feels like it's true when you're reading it. Like you kind of have a weird brain thing where you forget you're reading fiction. So this is about a church search committee that is tasked with finding a new senior minister. The story is told by Dana, a writer restaurant critic, and lapsed churchgoer who was called back to the church by some old friends to participate in this search for the minister. And this church is like a fairly secular church. I know that's weird to say, but like all religions are welcome at this church. This was four and a half stars for me. And I got to say, I am not super religious. I can't remember the last time I've been to church. I am more or less allergic to the word committee that just (laughs) gives me heart palpitations, all the drama and just I don't know. I don't want to be on a committee. I just don't. So really, it was very questionable whether I would like this book, whether it would work for me. But the book is actually about group dynamics. And I love books about group dynamics. It really reminded me of The Ensemble by Asia Gable, which is about a quartet of musicians. Also, I'm not interested in classical music per se, but this book about a quartet of classical musicians really interested me for the same reason, the group dynamics. It's an interesting look at consensus. Like, can you ever truly reach consensus? Does reaching consensus by browbeating actually mean you reached consensus? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a little bit of an allegory here about how a jury might work, like in a jury trial. It also looks at what it means to be a leader. It looks at bias. It looks at ageism. And the back part of this book is 
so dramatic. Like I was surprised. I was flipping those pages at the end. I know. I know. Like, how can this book end up being a page turner? But look, it's not a page turner in the beginning, but like, how can it end up feeling like a page turner? It's crazy. Right. I agree. But Meredith was the first person to really bring this book to the forefront, I feel like. And I don't know where she found it, but this was a great find. And that's Search by Michelle Hunnivan. And Catherine, you just sound like you're in agreement. Do you have anything to add or? <laughs> oh, no, I absolutely agree about every detail. And I am so grateful for Meredith suggesting I read it because it is not up my alley at all. Uh, religious books tend to make me nervous. And yet this was so much more about just people. Totally. I thought it was fabulous. Absolutely. Catherine, what is your next pick? Well, before my reading turned dark in December, I was in the mood for light. And so I tried The Flat Share, a rom-com recommended to me by Jill, a new bookish friend in Seattle. The novel's premise is based on the creative solution to a very real problem in the modern day world, skyrocketing rents in places like London and how to live in a city you can't afford. Oh, yeah. In this case, Tiffy is coming out of a bad relationship and needs to get out of her ex's flat. So she decides to take a chance on an ad from a man who works nights and is away on weekends and needs someone to help with the rent on their one-bedroom flat. An interview with the man's girlfriend makes both Tiffy and the girlfriend feel this could work. So basically, you're sharing a bed without sharing a bed, right? Yeah, it's like ships passing in the night, kind of. Exactly. You're right. It is an odd concept. You're not really roommates. I get it, though. But yeah, I do too. I would prefer that the character's name was not Tiffy. (laughs) I know. She's a very quirky character. And so, yeah, you kind of just get used to it. But yeah. So Tiffy and Leon begin sharing the same small flat without ever meeting and communicating only through notes. Because plot is the pull in a rom-com, there is plenty of it in this novel. What began as polite questions about where the garbage goes and even politer reminders to leave the toilet seat down becomes a friendship of words and the post-its that they use start to pile up. What made this book so enjoyable is the voices O'Leary gives her characters. Tiffy has a circle of close friends all protective and all equipped with sharp humor. Kind of reminded me of Hugh Grant's friends in Notting Hill. Oh, yes. Okay. I loved them. Well, this is very similar. Yeah. Well, they're all, it's all British, right? Isn't the book British too? Yep. Yep. And Tiffy herself, obviously with that name, is an eccentric. Her job is editing DIY craft books and Leon is reserved and quiet, but with a wry active internal dialogue. And this couple pairing in one tiny flat could devolve into slapstick, but O'Leary layers in situations that kept the story relatable. And it was especially well done regarding two very disparate subjects, unhealthy relationships and the criminal justice system, which I know sounds like, wait, what? But it works. Both are serious topics 
handled respectfully, but not in a way that overwhelms the novel. They're just another element in the complicated lives in this thoroughly entertaining book that left me happily refreshed. And that's The Flat Chair by Beth O'Leary. Well, I don't have this in my house, but now I want to have this in my house. (laughs) I'll send you my copy because I'm finished with it. You can put it on the floor next to All My Rage. I've seen this book a hundred times, but I don't think I ever realized what it was actually about. I think I just, oh yeah, another rom-com and moved on. Exactly. But this sounds really good and it sounds different than a hundred other rom-coms out there. Well, it is because it's also really funny. I mean, yeah, there are just some really unusual characters, which is not surprising if you think about someone who's editing DIY craft books. Sure. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's some wackiness, but it's really, really good. And then there's seriousness. It's a perfect blend. I loved it. All right. Well, that's going on the list. I'm going to have to wait a while, but... <laughs> Oh, that's right. Well, what's your next choice? My next choice falls in one of my favorite micro genres, which y'all have heard me talk about constantly, but it's because these books just work for me. And that is intense love stories that are not romances. Mm. So you just shared a romance. I'm sharing a not romance. Okay. This is Like a House on Fire by Lauren McBrayer. Came out in 2022. Our main character is Merit. She is a mother of two and not unhappily married to her husband of over a decade. So I wouldn't say she's blissfully married, but it's also not, she's not aware that her marriage is bad per se. She starts to feel stuck in her life though. And she returns to her career as an architect where she meets her new boss, Jane. And Jane is over a decade older than Merit. She's very sophisticated. She is worldly. She is very at home in her own skin all things that Merit really wants to be. And Merit also feels like Jane sees her as a woman beyond a wife and a mother. And that kind of makes Merit start to come alive in her own life. So Merit has to figure out what Jane is to her and what she wants for her own life. Another four and a half star book for me. This is an intense character-driven love story between two women. And it's a love story that feels really different from traditional romance It is all about that intense connection. And it's also about a woman who carries the load for most people around her, like a lot of women do in real life. She finally meets someone who sees straight through to what she needs, what she wants, and what she's going through. And this couple in this book, I don't even want to call them a couple. They're, you know, the two people in in the, the kind of relationship in this book. They really reminded me of Glennon and Abby. Oh my God. All right. So I have to read this book right now. Oh, you would love this book. Because Glennon and Abby are the best. I know. And y'all, if if you're not familiar with Glennon and Abby, you should be for one. But if you're not, we're talking about Glennon Doyle, the author of Untamed, and Abby Wambach, her wife, the ex-soccer player ex-star soccer player, I should say. And now they are all together on a podcast with Glennon's sister called We Can Do Hard Things, which I love as well. It's a wonderful podcast. It's great. But the cool thing about this book, and I love, you know, when the backstory makes things interesting. So I will link in the show notes to an article by Lauren McBrayer, the author. And she is talking about how this book started as a quote, meditation on gender dynamics in heteronormative marriages. Sounds pretty different from what we got, right? Wow. Yeah. Yep. 
But during the writing process, this book turned into something totally different. Also during that writing process, she realized a lot about her own life. So the thing I will say about this article, very cool, but also wait until after you've finished the book to read it because it spoils the book a little bit. And that's Like a House on Fire by Lauren McBrayer. You got to add that to your list. Yeah, I've already made the note. And as soon as we finish, I will be going to the library catalog. (laughs) Good little Catherine. (laughs) I know. The librarian in me is already like, okay. (laughs) All right. We are down to our last of our top five best backlist books of 2023. So Catherine, what is your final pick? Well, in the same way that I opened with a favorite author of yours, a book that we haven't read, I'm going to close the same way. And I have not yet read this book by her. Okay. It is a debut from an author we love. It's Leaving Atlanta by Tayari Jones, and it came out in 2002. It's a novel about three 10-year-olds living in the Atlanta area in 1979 when a serial killer began targeting Black children. For each, the disappearances and murders will have an impact on their lives, but in different ways. I knew Jones could write compelling fiction after reading An American Marriage, but she is just as strong in her debut with her ability to start with a bird's eye view, children disappearing in Atlanta, the news, that sort of thing, and zoom in on the microcosm of these three children's lives. She begins with Tasha, a girl who's a bit on the outside, but wants to be popular and just can't figure out how to make that happen. Rodney is another outsider from a very poor family who's bullied and seen as weak by his father, who he feels hates him. And Octavia lives alone with her mother, who works from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., so Octavia is home alone at night. Jones heightens the tension in the novel by keeping it chronological, with each child seeing and referencing the other children and events from further down the line. So Tasha is first and her experiences, initial disappearances, and the community response, people getting worried and organizing search parties. Octavia is the final part. And now not only are there disappearances, there are bodies and funerals and still no answers. This linear format means there's no escape from what's happening with chapters revisiting the past or anything like that. There's no break. You're being pulled along with these children as it's happening, except for a few instances when Jones inserts herself into the narrative and showcases her snarky sense of humor. So what is most heart-wrenching about this novel is its immediacy. These aren't vague connections, like living in the same state where a mass shooting occurred. These children know each other, and as time progresses, they know the boys who have vanished. They're watching the news and living through it at the same time. The novel shatters that complacency of, of seeing things from afar, hitting hard with the intimate details of three children in their last year of middle school, starting to make the move from childhood to the preteen years and having to learn lessons that no child should have to learn. It's painful and dark reading, even more so because Tayari Jones grew up in Atlanta and knew two of the boys who were killed. Yeah, we we should probably explicitly state that the murders of the black children in Atlanta, like those were real. 
she did not make those up. Like that's a real event that happened in Atlanta, but the book is fiction told around that. Yes. Okay. Right. And she acknowledges it was the most profound event shaping her childhood. And that's why she wrote about it. So that's leaving Atlanta. And I gave it 4.5 stars. I want to read that. I have only read two of Tiari Jones's books and I rated both of them five stars. An American Marriage, which was her most recent book, but that came out in 2018. So she's an author that I am chopping at the bit for a new book from. Right. Is the other one you read Silver Sparrow? Yes. And I loved that too. I loved it just as much as An American Marriage. Yes. Go read Silver Sparrow. A hundred percent. Wow. Because yeah, now I'm two for two on her. You should read Leaving Atlanta. You'll love it. Yes, I should. And Chiari, I know you're probably very busy, but like, please, when might we get another book from you? (laughs) It would be fantastic. That's right. All right. My final pick is a book that was on a ton of best books of 2022 list. I was initially reluctant to pick it up because it's a book about swimming, but not really. I am hesitant to read books about swimming because many of y'all know I was a swimmer growing up and I tend to get frustrated when the authors don't get the details right. And that affects my enjoyment of the book, but that did not happen here. So this is The Swimmers by Julia Atsuka. The first half of the story centers around a group of recreational swimmers who all work out at an underground indoor pool. A crack mysteriously appears in the bottom of the pool and it sends the swimmers into a bit of a tailspin. There's a lot of speculation about why is the crack here? How did it form? How long has it been here? What does it mean? What's going to happen to our pool? And in the second half, the story focuses a bit more on one of the swimmers in particular, Alice, who suffers from dementia. Again, this is a four and a half star book for me. As I mentioned earlier, this book is not really about swimming. It is about pursuing peace and respite from life, which though I have a complicated relationship with swimming to do that, the feelings she is talking about and the respite and relief from life is something I now get through tennis. So I really could identify with the emotions that she's talking about, even though swimming is not my way to get them. Mm -hmm. She writes ridiculously well about Absolutely nothing. Like nothing is happening in this story. (laughs) That's true. That's not an exaggeration. (laughs) Really, the only thing that happens is this crack appears and people speculate about it. But she does this with chuckle funny humor at times, which I loved. Like if you had told me all the stuff about this book going in, I don't know that I ever would have read it. Like, oh, hey, nothing happens. Also, there's no real individual characters in this book, except for the pool itself and the crack, especially in the first half. And the pool itself is kind of a character. But then Alice is the focus of the second half. So there is that character in the book, but like, that's it. There's no other characters that are deeply focused on. Here's why this all worked for me, despite the fact that theoretically it should not have based on things that I know that I like about my reading and that I don't like about my reading. At the time I read it, it felt really different than anything I had read lately. And it felt nice to have that feeling in 2023 because 2023 was a year where a feeling of sameness permeated a lot of my reading. And this kind of broke through that sameness. And I know you loved this one too, right, Catherine? I did. Yes. I even liked the second half. Oh, I liked the second half too. Yeah. I think a lot of people felt like that wasn't, I don't know. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. 
Yeah. All right. Those were our top backlist books we read in 2023. Now we're going to each share two underrated gems we want y'all to hear about that we read in 2023. I should say underrated backlist gems. Catherine, what's your first one? Well, I can't think of a book I've talked about on this podcast that left me feeling more inarticulate. (laughs) It's crazy, right? I know because I'm always talking, but it's too bright to hear, too loud to see. And I don't know where to start, except that I reread it this year because I had given it five stars back in 2013. And halfway through reading it again, I thought, uh-oh, how could I be so wrong? And by the last page, I was crying. Really? Yes. This is interesting. Well, I think it will be a, to you, Sarah, because so Grayson Todd is a wildly successful Hollywood executive. He has a lot of money and a lot of ways to waste booze, drugs, women. He isn't particularly nice to his wife. He mostly ignores her. And his eight-year-old daughter is a bit of an afterthought. He's brilliant at what he does until he hides under a neighbor's beach house because he is certain that his vanishing footprints in the sand indicate that he too is vanishing. And in a way, he is. After 20 years of managing his bipolar disease, he's realizing the noise inside his brain is making it impossible to continue his act. So he gets in his Mercedes, leaving his wife and daughter behind to embark on a decade-long hedonistic journey around the world. And I think this is another draw for you, Sarah. The book is packaged into the electric shock therapy sessions Todd undergoes after mentally and physically crashing. Oh, wow. So there are 12 chapters because there are 12 sessions. And each one begins with the soothing intonations of a nurse telling him, relax, think happy thoughts as he's being sedated. And then a structure you might expect as voltage courses through the brain and memories are retrieved and discarded at random. His travels have taken him around the world, so exotic locales are spliced together with scenes from his childhood and bits of his past as a student, husband, father, and studio executive. This novel is compulsively readable. Being immersed in Todd's fractured mind is irresistible in a scary kind of way. It's like the really drunk, funny guy at the party. And you know, eventually it's going to go bad, but he's still really funny up until that point or interesting or whatever. This is going to sound insane, but because I watched the Southern Charm reunion show last night. Oh, good Lord. Don't. I feel like you're talking about Chef Rose. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Now that you say that, yes, you could be. Does it feel chaotic to live in his head? Oh, it's insane. It's literally insane because he also has no budget. Oh, Lord. Right. Money is no object. I do want to note his behavior is slimy. He can be rude. He can be this and that. But he is never violent to anyone but himself, nor is he a sexual predator. He's hanging out in Bangkok, Thailand, wherever, and there's nothing untoward happening in that way. But the author, Julianne Gary, 
writes through his highest highs with panache and this sly humor, but she's just as skilled in her depiction of him when he comes to rest after the last of his ECT sessions. She gives him back his humanity in slow sentences that reflect a mind so damaged on the way to healing, it's uncertain if it will ever come all the way back. But there is hope, and that's too bright to hear, too loud to see, and it is still five stars for me. I have heard about this book multiple times over the years, and I never knew what it was about, I don't think. Well, the good read ratings aren't great. It's under four stars for sure. I feel like this is a book that's never going to have a high Goodreads rating, though, based on what you've said about it. Right. It's going to rub too many people the wrong way. Exactly. And yet, wow. Oh, my gosh. And the title is directly referencing what the world is like to him. Oh. Oh. Okay. That, you know, he's just hyperkinetic, frenetic, any of those words. So... When he's on, when he's manic, oh my goodness, he's winning Oscars. He's highly successful. But anyway, that's my first one. And yes, I still loved it. So how about you? I got kind of dark here too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Y'all know how much I loved I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin last year. It was one of my top books of 2023. It was a great addition to my intense love stories that are not romances, micro genre. So I went back and read Hannah Halperin's debut novel, which is Something Wild, which came out in 2021. Something Wild is the story of a violent relationship, but it's a broader family story, whereas I Could Live Here Forever focused on just the two people in the relationship at the center of that book. So in Something Wild, Lorraine and her second husband, Jesse, have been married for about eight years. She has two grown daughters, Tanya and Nessa, and they come to town to help their mom pack up their childhood home in preparation for her to move with Jesse to a nearby kind of town that's more low-key. And Jesse wants to make this move. While Tanya and Nessa are in town, they discover that their mom is in an abusive relationship. I kind of love going back and reading an author's debut that came out before the book that I most recently loved. Right. I like that too. I did that with Kevin Wilson and had a great experience. Oh, right. Okay. Sometimes, and this was what happened with Kevin Wilson too. Sometimes I can see the seeds of the later book in the earlier book. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with this as well. So while Something Wild is not as focused or tight as I Could Live Here Forever, I could see the seeds of I Could Live Here Forever in it. The way that she writes draws me so deeply into her characters' lives, I find that her character-driven stories are unputdownable. And that's hard for a character-driven story, right? Mm-hmm. She writes about relationships with massive trauma in the most beautiful way. And turns out, I found out after I read Something Wild, so when I read I Could Live Here Forever, I did not know this. But after I read Something Wild, I found out that Hannah Halperin was a domestic violence counselor. Oh. Yes. Oh, wow. So it's no wonder that she seems to be focusing on relationships with some sort of traumatic element. In this story, she explores what it's like for adult daughters to handle their mother being in an abusive relationship. And that was interesting, too. Like, that's just a different perspective of an abusive relationship that I had never really read before in my fiction. And it's also a story about sisters and the complicated turns that 
a sister relationship can take, especially when these are adult sisters. And that's Something Wild by Hannah Halperin. I know a lot of y'all read and loved I Could Live Here Forever. I do hope you go back and try her debut while we're waiting for her next book. All right, Catherine, what is your last underrated gem? What am I wrapping it up with? Well, my reading pendulum swung all the way to the opposite side of the spectrum with this choice. It's A Quiet Life by Ethan Joella. And maybe it was hyped when it came out in 2022, but I had not heard much about it. It's set during the winter in a suburb where the three main characters live, but they don't know each other. Each has suffered an event in their life that has upended them. Chuck is a man in his early 70s whose beloved wife died suddenly from cancer. Ella's young daughter is missing. And Kristen is a woman in her early 20s whose father was murdered. The novel begins with each trying to process their grief in their own way and each having limited success. All of their lives are kind of on pause. And before Joella starts bringing them together, he delves deep into the emotions of three very different kinds of grief. This was the first thing that pulled me in, how he could get so deeply into the minds and hearts of such different people, an elderly man, a middle-aged woman, and a young woman. And then to portray what they're feeling so evocatively that the reader can feel it, even without ever having had the experience. This is the kind of novel that makes you look at your neighbor or someone in the library or standing in the grocery line and wondering what they may have going on in their lives, because on the surface, Chuck, Ella, and Kristen all act normally. They're largely submerging their pain, and it isn't until their lives intersect in very mundane ways that they begin to open up again. But even then, when things get messy, I was still astonished at how reasonable Joella kept his character's actions. I was so invested in these characters and their situations that it was all relatable, Unlike the story with All My Rage, when you have teenagers and you're reading it going, oh, no, don't do that. In this case, everything they did, it was just like, okay, I could see that. I can understand that. So the writing and the story made this one of the most touching, poignant, lovely novels I read all year. That's A Quiet Life, and I gave it five stars. Catherine, you're killing my TBR today. (laughs) Have you not heard of that one or read it? Now, I've heard of it. Again, didn't know what it was about. Yeah. Books about grief are working well for me right now. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. This one, I think this one would touch you very deeply. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to go in a totally different direction to close things out today. (laughs) You're going to pull us out of the emotion. Okay. Yeah. This is more, I mean, there's a little bit of emotion here, I guess. It's a serious topic, but not in a very, not in a heart-wrenching way. So as I've told y'all before, the Cold War is the new World War II, as far as my reading is concerned. I love historical fiction about the Cold War, and this is actually nonfiction, but I enjoy both. The book is The Spy and the Traitor, The Greatest Espionage Story of the Cold War by Ben McIntyre, and it came out in 2018. This is the story of a senior KGB officer who spied for MI6 for 10 years, delivering a mountain of valuable intelligence. He was the spy who did the most to damage the KGB during the Cold War. Ooh, 
Okay. Another four and a half star book. I think almost, I think almost every book I shared today was four and a half stars. And this is a fascinating look at not only spycraft, but also the mentality of the KGB, which I found fascinating. I always had this view of the KGB as this truly scary, razor sharp organization. And I grew up in like the 80s when the Cold War was still happening. And this book really defangs the KGB. It talks about how much politics there was, how much laziness there was, how much sort of covering people's hides out of fear and saving face for yourself, all at the expense of doing good spycraft and doing good work. That sounds kind of like the TV show, The Americans. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that one. Is that kind of the way they're portrayed there too? Oh, yeah. And I just thought, okay, well, it's it's TV. Interesting. You haven't seen that series? Oh my gosh, Sarah, that is so up your alley. I don't watch a lot of TV. I think it's on Netflix now. Right. I think it's on Netflix. But yes, what they showed of the KGB was just kind of appalling. It was like, wait. It's like almost pure incompetence. Right. Like, how did they get anything done? Did you feel that way back when you were younger and the Cold War was going on? Did you think the KGB was incompetent? Oh, no. Yeah, no, me neither. (laughs) No, I thought they were like almost supernatural. Oh, yes. That we couldn't begin. Yeah, we made it to the moon first, whatever. We could not compete. They were everywhere. Yeah. That's what I thought as a kid. Yeah. So this book really illuminated that for me, which was fascinating. It also reveals how intelligence played a critical role in the thawing of East-West relations between Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev, like a very concrete way I'm talking about. And I read the last 40% of this book on a flight this summer. It is a total thrill ride. It is super suspenseful. It's very fast-paced. I was on the edge of my seat. I wasn't expecting the book to get like that by the end, but it did. And I would also say this is a great fiction, nonfiction pairing with Alma Katsu's Red Widow and Red London series duology, I guess at this point. There's only two of them so far. All right. Now I want to read this one too. I think you would love it. It's also like a dude book kind of. Right. So you could recommend this to dudes that like dude books. We're basically just enabling each other. This is not a healthy relationship. No, this is is terrible for the length of our TBR list. And also I now have to space all these out and read, you know, put some time in between this episode and when I actually pick these things up. All right, Catherine, thank you. You are welcome. I loved it. As usual, you can find all the books mentioned in the episode in the show notes. And in two weeks, which is February 7th, Amanda Peters, the author of the 2023 Barnes & Noble Discover Pick, The Berry Pickers, will be joining me. This was also one of my favorite debuts of 2023. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And make sure to follow Sarah's Bookshelves live in your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. You can find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at Sarah's Bookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.